everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we've got a new show for you this week. There's a lot of really interesting stories to catch you up on, so I'm kind of looking forward to this. I don't know if you happen to own any of the Sonos speakers, uh, the internet-connected speakers that you kind of like AirPods and some of these other products we have now, but they you spread around the house and you can kind of <laughs> have music throughout your home. Uh, and there was kind of a dust-up recently about a decision they had made to not support older older devices. And we're going to talk about how that applies just kind of generally to the Internet of Things these days. Also going to talk about uh, a Microsoft leak of over 250 million customer records uh, that were exposed online that were not even password protected. I talked recently about the Clearview AI company, the one that was scraping all your social media sites for pictures and putting together this massive facial recognition database. Well, uh, since that uh, article first came out in the New York Times, there's been a lot of blowbacks. So we're going to talk about what's going on with that. Quick anecdote about iOS 13 uh, and actually Android 10 as well and how the, uh, the privacy features they've added around location have really made a big difference. Going to talk about uh, Mozilla, the maker of Firefox, and how they uh, very recently banned 200 malicious add-ons uh, from their add-on store and why. And finally, we also talked uh, not that long ago about how Avast, uh, one of the makers of one of the most popular antivirus programs, was recently caught selling a lot of user data. And again, there's been blowback on that, and uh, they have decided to shut that down, or at least some part of it. So we'll, we'll talk about that, and that will lead into our tip of the week. And also at the end of the show, I recently got a really nice review from a privacy-oriented website, and I'll uh, toot my own horn a little bit. We'll talk about that at the end of the show. But for now, let's uh, lot to cover today. Let's let's dive into the news. All right, first up, um, this is interesting, and even if you're not a Sonos owner, and if you're not aware of these, again, Sonos is a brand of home speaker, a, a smart speaker that is connected via Wi-Fi and allows you to pipe music throughout your house if you've got several of these. And they've been around long enough now that they've got some older products and Sonos decided, well, you know what, we can't can't support these forever. But the way in which they decided to announce that and how and what they uh what the effect on those devices was going to be was not terribly palatable to its customers. So they've had to do some backpedaling and explaining. So the thing to keep in mind is, as I, I'm going to read you a little bit of the story here from Vice, uh, Vice.com, is this is true of basically all of our smart devices today. All these things that are internet connected require, to some degree, that internet connection uh, because there is some service being offered through cloud computing that if the cloud was not there or inaccessible, the devices would be dumb devices. Um, and and what kind of control that gives those manufacturers over you and your products. So uh, when I go to talk about Sonos here, but be thinking about basically any internet connected device you have in your home right now and how that, how this might apply to that. So uh, again, let me read, a, uh, read from this article from uh, vice.com. $300 smart bulbs that are suddenly bricked when the manufacturer is sold. Video game consoles that mysteriously lose features after you bring them home. Books or films you purchase that you suddenly and inexplicably lose the ability to access. Printers that don't print without an ink subscription. In the modern internet era, it's increasingly clear that consumers no, no longer actually own the things we buy. Instead, we're shelling out big bucks for products that can easily lose features or worse, stop working entirely on the whim of a corporation. The latest example comes courtesy of Sonos. 
which this week informed customers in an email it would no longer be supporting certain speaker systems. In the email, the company says that certain quote-unquote legacy systems will stop receiving security and software updates starting in May. And quoting here from, I guess, from the company email, it says, quote, legacy products were introduced between 2005 and 2011, and given the age of the technology, do not have enough memory or processing power to sustain future innovation, unquote. Users that have shelled out hundreds or thousands of dollars for smart speakers that still work didn't take the news particularly well. In the blog post, Sonos says owners of these legacy systems have two options. They can simply keep using the products, understanding that they won't receive new features, bug fixes, or software and security updates. Or users can trade in the older gear while nabbing a 30% discount on the purchase of a new Sonos system. The first option potentially opens customers up to security headaches in an era where Internet of Things devices are routinely hacked. Sonos's second option, its trade-in program launched last October, came under fire just last month for being wasteful. Users who trade in older Sonos systems immediately get a 30% discount, but their older hardware immediately enters a 21-day countdown before being put in quote-unquote recycle mode. Products in recycle mode can't be reused or repurposed without Sonos permission a wasteful outcome for a program Sonos claims was designed to minimize environmental impact. Nathan Proctor, the head of USPIRG's Right to Repair campaign, and I'm not sure what USPIRG is, um, but I've heard of the Right to Repair campaign, told Motherboard that Sonos's decision to leave customers between a rock and a hard place is emblematic of a tech industry in which sustainability, security, and consumer rights are often distant afterthoughts. And this is a quote from Proctor. He says, this is an epidemic problem, Proctor said, noting that having millions of unsupported and unpatched devices connected to the Internet poses significant security risks for an Internet of Things sector already widely criticized for being, privacy, <laughs> for being a privacy and security dumpster fire. Proctor said forced obsolescence also only incentivizes the public to discard perfectly good hardware, products now effectively having expiration dates that consumers aren't being clearly informed of at the time of purchase. Another quote from Proctor, he says, quote, there needs to be some transparency around obsolescence. There should be some imagination put into what these devices can be used for when they can't be connected all the time to the Internet. I think there's some responsibility for manufacturers to have a plan and not just zombie devices, unquote. Some companies like Samsung have toyed with efforts to root and repurpose older smartphones. And I'll stop there. We've talked about this before. To root uh, a device, and it's often smartphones because smartphones don't let you have administrator privileges. Uh, rooting allows you to have admin privileges to do whatever you want. Smartphones today are locked down, and you can't do anything you want to do. You can't install anything you want to do. If the device doesn't let you, then you can't. Uh, so people get upset about that, and the way they get around that is they root the devices. Uh, and the reason it's called rooting is because on the Unix operating system, the like God account on any Linux computer is called root. So if you have root access, then you have full, complete, access to that device to do anything with the software you want to do. Okay, back to the article. Others, like defunct fitness tracking company Pebble, released their source code to the public, helping create a community of users who gave the hardware a second wind. But by and large, most companies are far more interested in hyping and selling the next round of products than spending money to make sure older customers remain happy. Again, quoting from uh, Mr. Proctor, he says, This is something that these companies are just neglecting. Sonos is like the opening salvo. There will probably be a wave of these things that, that happen over the next couple of years, and eventually people are going to start being really upset about it, unquote. Security experts like Bruce Schneier have long argued that the Internet of Things is a broken market that creates both visible and invisible pollution, such as when your dated IoT camera is hacked and incorporated into a distributed denial-of-service attack. Ultimately, Schneier has warned 
An attack will be severe enough to wake the public up to the threat. And I'll explain that in just a minute. Until then, a scattered coalition is trying to build a framework that respects sustainability, security, and consumer privacy. Consumer Reports, for example, has been working on an open source standard that would incorporate security and privacy concerns into all product reviews, letting consumers avoid bad actors before attaching new devices to the internet. But by and large, most companies and governments remain apathetic to the threat. And last, one last quote from Proctory says, This is a chance now to come up with a system that doesn't cause massive planetary damage in exchange, in exchange for disposable stuff. All right, so Bruce Schneier is a name you should recognize. That's uh, the interview I replayed recently on the show. Uh, really amazing security guy and a really fun guy to talk to. So uh, that's the same Bruce Schneier we talked to recently. And when he talks about these devices, these IoT devices being incorporated into a quote-unquote distributed denial-of-service attack, uh, this is something we've talked about on the show, too. This is uh, what's called a botnet. And these devices, if they're, uh, if they're insecure and connect to the Internet, the hackers go looking for these things, and they take control of them. Now, as a user, uh, it still continues to perform its regular functions normally, so you would probably have no idea that this has happened. But once these bad guys have gained access to potentially hundreds of thousands of these devices around the Internet, they now have this kind of zombie army that's called a botnet where they can tell all these devices simultaneously to gang up on a website they don't like. Uh, and that's called a distributed, because there's so many of them, denial of service attack. And it's called denial of service because the flood of traffic on these websites usually brings them to their knees. Now, you know, big sites like Google and Amazon have got all sorts of servers that, you know, and, and protections out there. Cloudflare, one of our favorite companies, and John Graham coming, one of our favorite interviews on the, on the show. Uh, they have you know, technology in place to help protect websites against these sorts of attacks. Uh, but smaller websites have no defense against something like this. So if somebody wanted to take them out, uh, all they have to do is flood their uh, servers with more requests than they can handle, and then it becomes unavailable to everybody. So, but anyway, back back to the the heart of this issue, and that is that we, in recent years, have made such a priority of putting everything on the internet because you can offer some really interesting services once you connect these things together in a massive global network. But the one of the big downsides to that, something that we're just starting to face now as stories like this Sonos story pop up, is that for most of these devices to be useful, they need that internet connection. So if the internet is down or if the company that made that device is suddenly gone, meaning that the service uh, that was out on the internet that the supported your devices is also gone, these devices no longer work. And companies know this, and in some cases, you know, whether explicitly or implicitly are are counting on this to, like in this case, Sonos basically said, and it's understandable, you know, it's just like Windows and Mac OS at some point, and iOS for devices, at some point they finally have to say, you know what, you know, we can't support all the devices that have ever been built. Like, you know, we can't put iOS 13 on the very first iPhone that came out. That That device can't handle it. So there's something to be said for that, but and I think where we need to get to with this, and this unfortunately is probably going to require regulation, there's that word again, for these devices to fail safe uh, in some sort of a way so that if the company goes away or the internet service goes down, uh, the company's bought out and that service is shut down by the buying company, that these devices have some sort of a second life and aren't just turned into bricks. That's, that's kind of the... That's the hacker or the computer engineer expression for a device, a software device that no longer functions because for whatever reason, the device can't boot up anymore or can't perform its function anymore. It's basically, it's basically a brick. 
So I think we're going to need some sort of regulation that says, okay, look, you know, if if you can say that you don't want to support new features, that's fine, but you probably need to support at least security fixes for these devices. Or if you really can't afford it, or if the company goes under or whatever, then there should be some sort of provision for those devices to be taken over by third parties, perhaps even open source uh, the software so that those devices, uh, some other company could come along and including an open source community that would do it for free, that would write software that would let you install a new operating system uh, or new firmware onto these devices and give them life after the company has gone or has abandoned the product. Actually, and this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this sort of discussions. And uh, I can think of no better person to talk to about this than Corey Doctorow. And as it happens, uh, we'll be interviewing him soon. So uh, stay tuned for that. That will be a very interesting discussion. We'll dig into this uh, this topic much deeper. All right, next up, uh, Microsoft. I'll just read the article. Microsoft security shocker as 250 million customer records exposed online. And uh, this is an article from Forbes. Forbes.com, and I'll just I'll just quickly read it to you. A new report reveals that 250 million Microsoft customer records spanning 14 years have been exposed online without password protection. Paul, I, I probably get his name wrong. Bischoff, B-I-S-C-H-O-F-F. Paul Bischoff, a privacy advocate and editor at Comparatech, has revealed how an investigation by the Comparatech security research team uncovered no less than five servers containing the same set of 250 million records. Those records were customer service and support logs detailing conversations between Microsoft support agents and customers from around the world. Incredibly, the unsecured Elasticsearch servers, and Elasticsearch is just a kind of a database, contained records spanning a period from 2005 right through to December 2019. When I say unsecured, I mean that the data was accessible to anyone with a web browser who stumbled across the databases. No authentication at all was required to access them, according to the Comparatech report. The nature of the data appears to be that much of the personally identifiable information was redacted. However, the researchers say that many contained plain text data including customer email addresses, IP addresses, geographic locations, descriptions of customer service and support claims and cases, Microsoft support agent emails, case numbers, and resolutions, and internal notes that had been marked as confidential. This may seem like no big deal in the overall scheme of things, but when you consider that Microsoft support scams are pretty rampant, it doesn't take a genius to work out how valuable such information would be to the fraudsters carrying out such attacks. On December 28, 2019, the databases in question were discovered and indexed by threat intelligence search engine Binary Edge. The following day, Bob Dychenko, who headed up the Comparatech security research team, spotted them and notified Microsoft. And this is a quote from Dychenko. He says, I immediately reported this to Microsoft, and within 24 hours, all servers were secured, unquote. Considering the time of year, that was a remarkably quick response. That said, it was also a remarkably serious leak. So, you know, this has been happening a lot lately. I, I don't get how, I mean, my personal take on this is that there should be no way, no way for a public server, database server of any sort, to not be encrypted, to not require authentication. That, I mean, it shouldn't even be an option. We have seen this happen way too often recently. And the thing is, it's not like somebody has to get lucky to find these things. There are automated computer programs written by these hackers and some of these research groups that just troll the internet looking for open servers and seeing what data they can find on them. This is automated. This is done by computers. It's not even done by humans. So it's it's going to get found. So again, I know I've said it again, but we, we need some legislation here because otherwise there's just very little incentive. I mean, I, I guess there could be in some of these cases, there might be class action lawsuits filed, you know, and maybe that will do something. But 
in the end, we really just need some sort of, you know, some sort of rules uh, with teeth to better incentivize, you know, security and privacy. All right, moving on. We talked about Clearview AI. Uh, that was the company that the New York Times exposed might be the right word, but certainly drew attention to. A small little company uh, run by a guy that I called Mr. T because I couldn't, couldn't pronounce his last name, who had written software that basically scrapes the internet, all the social media groups, uh, the big social media companies for pictures and information about people, and then puts it in this database of 3 billion faces with information and selling it to law enforcement agencies to allow them to basically take a picture of somebody, perhaps even at a distance, and identify who that person is, including perhaps where they live, who their friends are, and all sorts of information. So anyway, the, this is there's two articles here I want to I want to uh, talk about. Uh, since that first article has come out, uh, one of them is from the New York Times, uh, following up on this, and it says, a mysterious company that has licensed its powerful facial recognition technology to hundreds of law enforcement agencies is facing attacks from Capitol Hill and from at least one Silicon Valley giant. Twitter sent a letter this week to the small startup company Clearview AI demanding that it stop taking photos and any other data from its social media website, quote-unquote, for any reason, and delete any data that it has previously collected. The cease and desist letter sent on Tuesday accused Clearview of violating Twitter's policies. And again, I'll stop here. This is This is part of the problem, is that these companies make these things available sometimes only as what we call APIs, computer APIs. So they're making it available to third parties, not not your average human, not your average person. Uh, you wouldn't, you know, browse to get some of this data, uh, though some of it, obviously, whatever's publicly available, anybody can get, right? And that's part of where this person got their stuff is people had public Facebook uh, profiles, public Twitter profiles, uh, Venmo and some of these other things that, you know, it's right there for the taking. And the only thing stopping people from doing what this guy did is some obscure policy that these companies put out basically to cover their own butts when things like this happen. But nevertheless, there's nothing really stopping this from happening. Okay, back to the article. The New York Times reported last week that Clearview had amassed a database of more than 3 billion photos from social media sites, including Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Venmo, and elsewhere on the internet. The vast database powers an app that can match people to their online photos and link back to the sites the images came from. The app is used by more than 600 law enforcement agencies, ranging from local police departments to the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. Law enforcement officials told the Times that the app has helped them identify suspects in many criminal cases. Clearview's database of photos dwarfs those previously used by law enforcement agencies. Other technology companies capable of building such a tool, like Google, have decided not to because of concerns about the potential for abuse. Tor Eakland, a lawyer for Clearview, confirmed that it had received Twitter le Twitter's letter and said the company will quote-unquote respond appropriately. He declined to comment further. The Times article set off angry protests from Democratic lawmakers and privacy watchdogs who said it was paving the way for universal facial recognition technology that would effectively end people's ability to remain anonymous while in public. On Wednesday, Sen Senator Edward Markey, Democrat of uh, Massachusetts, also sent a letter to Clearview addressed to its co-founder and chief, chief executive... <laughs> Mr. T. Uh, his name is Juan Ton That, H-O-A-N-T-O-N-T-H-A-T. Again, I'm calling him Mr. T. And Mr. Markey wrote in this letter, he says, widespread use of your technology could facilitate dangerous behavior and could effectively destroy individuals' ability to go about their daily lives anonymously, unquote. Senator's letter poses 14 questions to the company and asks if it, asks it to respond by February 12th. Mr. Markey wants Clearview to provide a list of all law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies, as well as private entities that use the app. He also asked about the collection of children's information by the company and how it vets its product for accuracy and security. 
Again, Mr. Markey says, quote, in the absence of rigorously enforced consumer privacy law, technology companies will continue to develop and market products that pose ex existential threats to our fundamental privacy rights, unquote. So I completely agree with Senator Markey, and he's done some great work on this in the past. So I'm, I'm very anxious to see what he gets uh, from this company in terms of answers and where it goes from here. And there was another article from Naked Security that I want to read uh, some excerpts from. It's, um, it says, New York facial recognition startup Clearview AI, which has amassed a huge database of more than 3 billion images scraped from employment sites, news sites, educational sites, and social networks, including Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Venmo, is being sued in a potential class action lawsuit that claims the company gobbled up photos out of quote-unquote pure greed to sell to law enforcement. The complaint was filed in Illinois, which has the nation's strictest biometrics privacy law, the Biometrics Information Privacy Act, or BIPA. The suit against Clearview was just one chunk of shrapnel that threw from the, after the New York Times published an expose about how Clearview had been quietly selling access to face prints and facial recognition software to law enforcement agencies across the U.S., claiming that it can identify a person based on a single photo, revealing their real name and far more. The complaint claims that Clearview's technology gravely threatens civil liberties. And here's a quote from the complaint. It says, Constitutional limits on the ability of the police to demand identification without reasonable suspicion, for instance, mean little if officers can determine with certainty a person's identity, social connections, and all sorts of other personal details based on the visibility of his face alone. The lawsuit claims that Clearview isn't just selling this technology to law enforcement. It's also allegedly sold its database to private entities, including banks and retail loss prevention specialists, has actively explored using its technology to enable a white supremacist to conduct, quote-unquote, extreme opposition research, and has developed ways to implant its technology in wearable glasses that private individuals could use. Representatives of Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Venmo told the Times that their policies prohibit this kind of scraping. Twitter said that it explicitly banned use of its data for facial recognition. Last week, Twitter also sent a cease and desist letter to Clearview, telling it to stop collecting its data and to delete whatever data it now has. So, again, I hope this drives home the importance of, of this story and what's going on here. This, this was bound to happen. It was guaranteed to happen. In fact, it may have actually already happened elsewhere, and this was the first company that's been exposed to, uh, to doing it or maybe just the most successful company to have done it. All this data is there for the taking. And all you have to do is write some computer programs that scans the web and scrapes all this data together, and then combine that with facial recognition technology, which has become very prevalent and easy to use even for laymen today. And you've got this app. All of a sudden, you snap someone's picture walking down the street, and you can immediately tell who that person is. And again, given all the information that people give away for free on their public profiles, it could tell you a whole lot more than that. All right, I'm not going to beat that anymore to death. We talked about it before, but I wanted to update you on what was going on with that story. All right, next up, an article from 9to5Mac. Uh, its title is, iOS 13 Privacy Focus Has Seen Background Location Tracking Fall 68%. So uh, this is pretty short. Let me just read this to you. Apple's decision to be much more proactive in alerting users to background location tracking in iOS 13 has resulted in a 68% drop in the location data collected by apps. The issue has also seen greater media attention, with many people now learning about the existence of commercial location tracking databases. iOS has long offered users control over whether and when an app can track your location, but iOS 13 introduced two changes that have made users much more aware of the issue. First, when an app is using location tracking in the background, iOS 13 periodically launches a pop-up that reminds the user that they have granted this permission and offers the option to switch it off. 
Second, we now have the option of requiring an app to ask for permission every single time it wants to access our location. Google has also followed suit with similar privacy protections in Android 10. Fast Company reports that the combination of these two things has seen a 68% fall in background location tracking and a 24% fall in foreground tracking while the app is open. Android's location controls haven't always been as useful, but the latest Android 10 release plays catch-up with a similar only-while-in-use setting when apps request location data. Like iOS, Android 10 also alerts users when an existing app collects location data in the background and provides a shortcut to stop the app from doing so. App developers have been able to monetize your location data by letting advertisers serve location-based ads. This allows them to promote local outlets or push offers on products sold nearby. The piece says that they will still be able to do this using your IP address, but this will provide a less reliable and granular location. With Apple and Google providing less ready access to GPS location data, marketers will likely turn to IP addresses for location tracking instead, says Location Sciences Smith. And I think he was, this is an excerpt, so I cut out his first name earlier. So uh, anyway, apps and websites can collect this data through the mobile or Wi-Fi network you're using, and neither iOS nor Android offers any built-in controls to prevent it. And I'll, I'll just say it's, it's not really their fault. I mean, the internet works. IP addresses are how the internet works. It's like, you know, you can't call someone's cell phone without knowing their, without knowing their phone number. That's, you know, that's how the whole phone system works. We have numbers, we have addresses, and they don't change. Now, IP addresses do change, but the thing about IP addresses is if you analyze them, uh, they are kind of grouped by region. So in a lot of cases, if you uh, examine an IP address, you can narrow down someone's location, you know, like let's say to a city. So there's, you know, it's, it's one thing they could say that they're not doing anything to avoid it, but that's, that's also, that's just how things work. It's kind of hard to avoid. Uh, but there's one more paragraph here, and it does talk about it one way you can avoid it. It says, however, an increasing number of people are opting to use VPN services, especially when using public Wi-Fi hotspots. These protect users against man-in-the-middle attacks from fake hotspots with the added benefit of hiding our location. The location advertiser C is wherever the VPN ser- server happens to be based. The days of background location tracking being useful to advertisers may be numbered. All right, that that sounds a little more hopeful than I think it is. First of all, there is, yes, there's, I, there's IP address tracking. There's also MAC address tracking. So your Bluetooth, your Bluetooth radio, your uh, Wi-Fi radio broadcast their own unique ID everywhere they go when they're looking for things to connect to. And if you set up the right, you know, listening devices, you can actually remember that you saw that same MAC address before because the MAC addresses generally don't change. Now, one of the things the devices, again, this is total cat and mouse game. One of the things the devices are doing, including Apple with iOS, is they are randomizing that MAC address while they search. Uh, They have to give it the right, uh, eventually have to give it a real MAC address when they want to connect, but at least while they're searching, they can kind of give out these fake MAC addresses uh, and, and randomly rotate them so that you can be less recognizable. But then there's the other things too. So if your app has access to uh, whatever Wi-Fi hotspots are nearby, you'd be surprised at how uh, there are databases that exist that, you know, like bring out your phone right now, especially if you're in maybe in a public place and, or, you know, when you have a chance, if you're driving your car, don't do it. But uh, when you get a chance, whip out your phone and just open up Wi-Fi and see what Wi-Fi uh, networks are available. So what that is, is those are all the Wi-Fi networks by name that are close enough to your phone that it could possibly connect to them. Now think, if there was a database of every single Wi-Fi uh, name in existence uh, with some sort of a location ass- assigned to them, if you had that list, you could kind of triangulate to figure out roughly where that person is. There's a lot of ways that you can figure out where you are. GPS is just the, the most uh, accurate one. So anyway, uh, again, 
<laughs> I hate to keep harping on this, but you know, we're not going to fix this unless there's some, uh, some rules that say you can't do this. All right, moving on. Mozilla has banned nearly 200 malicious Firefox add-ons. Here's a very short excerpt from a ZDNet article uh, about this. Over the past two weeks, Mozilla's add-on review team has banned 197 Firefox add-ons that were caught executing malicious code, stealing user data, or using obfuscation to hide their source code. And I'll talk about that in a minute. The add-ons have been banned and removed from the Mozilla add-on portal to prevent new installs, but they've also been disabled in browsers of users who already installed them, which is great, by the way. Sometimes they don't do that. The bulk of the ban was levied on 129 add-ons developed by Turing, some company. The ban was enforced because the add-ons were downloading and executing code from a remote server. According to Mozilla's rules, add-ons must self-contain all of their code and not download code dynamically from remote locations. Mozilla has recently begun strictly enforcing this rule across its entire add-on ecosystem. Bans were also levied for illegally collecting user data, but there were also bans for malicious behavior. Mozilla reviewers banned 30 add-ons that exhibited various types of malicious behavior. Mozilla listed only the add-ons ID, not their name, so developers can appeal the ban and remove the malicious behavior. Last but not least, Mozilla's security staff also banned a batch of add-ons that were caught using obfuscated code, a technique through which add-on developers make their code hard to read for the purposes of hiding malicious behavior. So obfuscation is actually used for lots of reasons. Um, It's kind of hard to describe if you're not used to doing coding. But it's when you describe computer coding, which are basically a long list of instructions for the computer to execute in a certain order that makes it do what it does, that makes all your software, everything you own that's got software in it, that's how it works. And in most cases, that software is inaccessible to, to the average user. It's embedded into hardware and it's hard to extract. And web browsers uh, and plugins, that software is, you could actually look at that if you want to. You can actually see what software is being there, uh, being executed. And for intellectual property reasons, a lot of times they will obfuscate that code to make it hard to copy. But increasingly, what we're seeing is this obfuscation is also being done to hide uh, the true intent of the software and what it's what it's doing. So they're cracking down on that and saying, "Look, if you're gonna if you're gonna uh, be on the Mozilla add-on store, you know, you've got it's got to be open kimono. <laughs> you've got to show us everything you're doing. Uh, we've got to be able to see it all at the time that you're doing it. Which means that once you're installed, you can't then download more software to run later. That's the remote server thing." Uh, that they're also blocking. So, you know, we got to know everything you're doing. You can't be changing what you're doing without going through the uh, the approval process again. Uh, and thank goodness they, they've caught a lot of these uh, plugins doing bad things and shut them off, cut them down. Uh, and then, you know, if they get their act together, they can get back in and they'll, they'll be reapproved. All right, last up. Uh, recently, I talked to you about Avast, uh, who's the maker of a very popular antivirus program, uh, very uh, a free version, the one is very popular, obviously, because it's free, and it's used by a lot of people, and it was recently caught selling user data. So there's been a backlash to this once the story broke, uh, and some of that's covered here by this uh, VentureBeat article. So let me just read the article. Antivirus software giant Avast has announced that it will wind down one of its subsidiary businesses just days after leaked documents revealed the extent to which the Czech company was selling users' browsing data to third parties. On Monday, Vice and PC Magazine published details of how Avast had been collecting browsing data covering web properties such as Google Maps and Search, LinkedIn and YouTube, and then repackaging it for sale under a subsidiary called JumpShot, which claimed clients such as Google, Microsoft, Yelp, Pepsi, Home Depot, and Condé Nast. Although the data was not 
thought to contain any personally identifiable information, it's often possible to de-anonymize data by combining and aligning it with different data sets to unearth shared patterns. And I'll stop right there because that, that's a very key point. So a lot of these companies that collect data try to do the right thing. Like they try to scrub it for your name and address and whatever, and just kind of, you know, they want to kind of capture behavior and aggregate it together to find out how people respond to things, which things are more popular, you know? And so they may call you, you know, let's say they give you a, a number instead of a name. And so they still have the individual data, but they don't assign it to a, your, your name or your phone number or something that could identify you personally, uh, which is their way of trying to anonymize this data. But if you take some of this data, and if there's enough details in this data, and then compare that to other databases that might share some of the same data, uh, you can say, okay, well, this database doesn't label this data as coming from Kerry Parker, but this other database I also have over here, when I correlate the two, that sure looks like Kerry Parker, because in this other database, I've got some similar information uh, that when I uh, put these two things side by side, I can say, yeah, that's probably Kerry Parker. So back to the article, according to the latest report, some jump shot clients paid millions of dollars for various products, including something called a quote unquote, all clicks feed that was apparently able to track users' behavior, such as clicks and movements between websites. For a company like Google, which has so far declined to comment on the report, this can significantly improve and measure targeted advertisements. Avast has now said it plans to quote unquote, terminate its provision of data to jump shot and will eventually pull the plug on the product altogether. This won't impact Avast's core products, but it will seemingly diminish a significant revenue-generating stream for the company. With more than 400 million users, Avast is among the top five antivirus providers globally and remains one of the industry's best-known brands. By shuttering JumpShot, Avast is essentially trying to protect its core AV software business, particularly since the company has public shareholders to answer to following its 2018 IPO. Avast shares have ridden, risen around by around 90% year-on-year up until this week, but in the days following Vice's report, the company's stock fell by 25%. And by the way, that, <laughs> you know, it probably fell 25% not because they were caught doing something bad, but, but because they are willingly giving up a serious revenue stream. <laughs> so anyway, back to the article. In truth, JumpShot has made no secret of the fact that it leveraged a vast data and had previously released that it uses data from 100 million devices, including PCs, smartphones, and tablets. But this latest report not only highlights the extent to which the data was used, it also raises question over how much consent users actually gave. It turns out transparency may be the bigger issue. According to Avast, users had to opt out of the program until last year, which means that many people would not have been fully aware that they were sharing data. The company said that it had begun implementing an opt-in choice for all new downloads from July 2019 and added that it's also now starting to prompt existing quote-unquote free users to choose whether to share data with JumpShot. Anyone installing Avast now will see this opt-in box during setup, and uh, they show a picture which you, of course, can't see. Uh, so let me just read to you what this box is. So in other words, if you're installing Avast, it pops up this window uh, with this question on it. And the title is, Mind Sharing Some Data With Us? And the explanation below says, If you allow it, we'll provide our subsidiary, JumpShot Incorporated, with a stripped and de-identified data set derived from your browsing history for the purpose of enabling JumpShot to analyze markets and business trends and gather other valuable insights. The data is fully de-identified and aggregated and cannot be used to personally identify or target you. JumpShot may share aggregated insights with its customers. For more information about the processing and categories of data used for it, please see our 
consent policy, which is probably their privacy policy. If you ever change your mind, you can change your privacy settings anytime right from the app. And then below that are two buttons. Uh, the left one says, no thanks. And the right one says, I agree. And of course, by default, I agree is highlighted, meaning that if you just hit return, you have agreed. So back to the article, it says, Avast also told Vice that it complies with privacy regulations such as the California Consumer Privacy Act, or CCPA, and the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, in Europe. However, that is really up for debate. Indeed, GDPR specifically forbids pre-ticked opt-in boxes. And the fact that Avast chooses to highlight the I agree button could be construed as an attempt to influence the user's selection. This is what is known as a dark pattern design. And many technology companies, including Facebook, employ similar tactics to encourage users to cede to their whims. Last year, two U.S. senators introduced a bill that would prevent social media firms from using dark pattern interface designs. Ultimately, the fact that Avast and JumpShot had been working together to sell user data was not a closely guarded secret. But it's fairly clear that Avast was not entirely transparent with its users. Transparency in the tech industry is an issue that has reared its head time and time again. The underlying problem is not so much the data sharing practice itself, but the lack of clear disclosure. Okay, so that's there, there's more to it, and uh, I've just excerpted the parts that I thought were important. And that's kind of lead to the tip of the week. And it's not much of a tip other than the tip is just, just say no to sharing. So it's kind of easy to not do something. It's, uh, but uh, take that a step further and go back and review and unfortunately, we've installed a lot of apps on a lot of products. I'm talking your smartphone, your tablets, uh, your computers, all the apps you've installed on your smart TVs, the apps that you've installed uh, or that came with uh, your streaming boxes like Roku and Fire TV and Apple TV. You need to go through the settings on those. And any place you see something that says share, I would turn off. Beware of euphemisms and dark pattern terminology that makes these things sound like they're good for you. Uh, it's often couched in terms like personalizing your experience or, you know, helping them to make better products. And sometimes they'll come out, you know, they'll come right out and say that we, you know, we would use this to tailor the advertising that we give you, you know, because, hey, you know, why, you know, don't, surely if we're going to send you ads, at least you want to get ads that you, you know, might care about, right? And then there'll also be information about, you know, you know we don't share this data or we only share anonymized data or de-identified data. And as we can see from this article, and other things we've talked about today, that's not necessarily good enough. So the fact of the matter is, it's a wild west out there. There are no rules. These people are basically free to do just about whatever they want. Now, you know, in Europe and under GDPR, this has been restricted. And those restrictions are still being tested as, you know, some of those cases are still coming to light. And of course, you know, these, it has to actually be discovered. Someone's got to catch somebody doing it before they can be, uh, before they can be, you know, brought to trial or, or, or made to pay fines on these things. But here in the United States, other than, you know, California, which just passed the CCPA, uh, there's still a lot of us that are totally vulnerable to this, and there's really not much we can do about it. But many of these companies, you know, in trying to be either GDPR compliant or CCPA compliant or, uh, you know, try to just cover their butts, do have settings that you can change. And in a lot of cases, the settings are defaulted to what benefits them, not you. Uh, so my tip of the week then, um, is to review the privacy settings you have for the apps that you have installed and the software you have installed, uh, for the operating systems, you, you know, you have to dig around, find the privacy settings and go through each setting. I know it's a pain it, at some places. It'll be like a button for advanced settings. You're probably gonna have to open that up as well, because one of the dark patterns is to hide these settings as far away as possible to make it as difficult as possible for you to find them and change them. 
So while it is true that this information can help these people improve their products, and in that sense, it's a good thing, until we have some sort of laws around this and regulations around this, just say no. All right, that's our show. Uh, a lot of really interesting stuff this week. And uh, hopefully by next week, we'll have a, that interview I talked about. I've actually, Again, I've got actually several kind of waiting in the wings and I'm just trying to get some people to uh, find a time where we can get together and do those interviews. So a lot of stuff coming up. But with any luck, by the next time you come around, uh, I will have interviewed Cory Doctorow and we'll talk a little bit more about this planned obsolescence and how our smart devices are really holding us hostage in a lot of ways because without, you know, the internet or the company uh, whose internet service behind it gives it its functions, uh, they're useless. So I did mention early in the show that uh, I got some really nice kudos from this this website called The Privacy Issue. They posted their list of the 10 most essential privacy podcasts on Twitter. Uh, and of course, they tagged me because I was one of their top 10. Very proud to get that. And uh, they have a really nice write-up. So let me just let me just read what they wrote up about my podcast. It says, Kerry Parker launched the Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons podcast to correspond with his eye-opening book of the same name. The podcast is released weekly and highlights current events in privacy and cybersecurity, as well as much more general tech topics. Carrie interviews a wide variety of experts across academia and industry, explaining each week's stories for the non-techie crowd. Guests include Bruce Schneier for the Data Privacy Day Pod Centennial, which I just replayed last week. Corey Doctorow for Do We Own Any Media We Buy Anymore, which that's the guy I'm hoping to interview soon again. And Ladar Levison, infamous founder of LavaBit, for the two-part, Why I Killed My Company to Save My Customers. Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons will leave you entertained and educated, pondering your place in the digital landscape and coming back each week for more. So that was great, and I just had to toot my own horn a little bit. I thought that was wonderful. And it did call out some really interesting interviews that I've had in the past. I mean, I've, I would argue that most of them were, most or all of them were interesting. They were certainly interesting to me. But there were some really great ones. If you go to my website, uh, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, and click on the podcast tab, um, you'll find links to the ones I think are maybe like, you know, my top 10 of the interviews I've done. And that includes these ones that they listed here and others. So, you know, if you came to the podcast a little bit later, you know, I have been doing this for almost three years now. You might go back there and look at some of these articles and, and go back and, and, and listen to some of these that are really some of the more top-notch interviews that I've done and some of the more, you know, quote-unquote famous people that I've interviewed. So one last thing again real quick. Uh, I am looking for feedback on the website, the podcast, and particularly the book. Uh, because I'll be working on the fourth edition here soon. So uh, again, send those, uh, send your notes to feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. I've already gotten some from you. Thank you very much. And again, I would love to have you spread, help me spread the word. You know, share these with other people, forward them to other folks, um, buy the book for somebody as a gift, forward some particularly interesting newsletters or blog articles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And if you have any sort of social media presence, I would love to get some shout-outs there as well too. It's all about expanding the audience and reaching more people. Because the more of us, more of us follow this kind of advice, the better off we will all be. At the end of the day, we need to be informed consumers as well as informed citizens. And we've got elections coming up. So, you know, having a handle on some of these issues is really good when you're going to those town halls or when you're listening to the debates. And hopefully these issues get brought up and discussed and you can kind of, you know, figure out for yourself which of these candidates is best representing your interests in terms of cybersecurity and privacy. All right, that will do it. Thanks again for tuning in. Until next week, I hope you all stay safe. And as always... Don't get caught with your drawbridge down.